This is your home of the Oregon Ducks. Up to Brown Jr. Passes off to Smith for the dunk with two hands. And we love to talk about them. With expert interviews, insight, and analysis, this is Quack Attack with Judah Newby. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling on your home of the Oregon Ducks. 1029 and 750 The Game. It's good to be back. Welcome into the Quack Attack 1029-750 The Game. Tune to New Newbie here with you wherever you may be uh, driving around. Thanks for tuning us in. Over the next hour, talking some Oregon hoops as they wrap up a final homestand of the regular season with Arizona State and Arizona Thursday, Saturday, respectively. Then they go up to face the Washington schools next week, and then it's on to Vegas for the Pac-12 tournament and hopefully for Oregon, an at-large bid, unless they do something magical in Vegas, um, to the NCAA tournament, but we shall see. Coming up on the program, Andrew Greif is going to stop by because the Oregon women's program is having one heck of a season, including a win Monday night over UCLA. Top 10 teams were meeting in Eugene on Monday night. Ducks 8th in the country. They got that win in overtime, and keep in mind, this is after last year where they went all the way to the Elite 8 before losing to UConn, so we'll see what kind of expectations the Oregon women and have placed on themselves moving forward. Kelly Graves, I know, uh, was on these airwaves earlier this week, and he called that win Monday over UCLA, one of the biggest in their program's history. So where do the Ducks women stand as they move forward? And keep in mind the Beaver women, 12th in the most recent AP poll as well, despite their RPI being in the low 30s. So we'll see. We'll keep an eye on those two programs moving forward as uh, they get closer and closer to their own Pac-12 tournament, which is in Seattle in two weeks' time. Also, we'll talk about uh, the Arizona State opponent that the Ducks have coming up Thursday night with Doug Haller of AZ Central Sports in the Arizona Republic. Talk to Doug about how Arizona State is looking since the last time they played Oregon. Keep in mind, that was one of the Ducks' better wins of the season was back in January in Tempe when they upset the Sun Devils that were ranked, uh, I think, 10th in the country or 11th in the country at the time. So it was a huge win for Oregon back then. We'll see if they can parlay that into a sweep of Arizona State. And Arizona State's team that, interestingly enough, Though they went unbeaten in non-conference play, though they got up to be as high as number three in the AP poll, and though they have a high-profile and high-branded coach in uh, in Bobby Hurley, that's a team that's got a lot of warts and a lot of flaws. And it, it's hard to deny that, especially when they're over their last six against rivals like University of Arizona. They haven't beaten the Ducks in over four years now. It's It's been since February of 2014 since Arizona State last got a victory in, this, uh, in the matchup with Oregon. So... Though they they have plenty of talent, and from what I hear, and from what the ESPN ratings have, the Sun Devils do also have a lot of recruiting talent that's coming in next season. But as of right now, it's a guard-heavy team that when their shots are going in, they're winning games. When their shots aren't going in, they're not winning games. And that's pretty much the story in college basketball for a lot of teams, but in particular, this Arizona State opponent. Uh, we'll also uh, take a listen to some Duck audio at practice from earlier this afternoon. And keep in mind that this is an opportunity for a lot of one-and-doneers at University of Oregon. And by one-and-done, I'm not only meaning Troy Brown Jr., most likely, but also guys that came into the program from other schools, most notably Mikhail McIntosh and Elijah Brown. These are guys that are going to be celebrating their senior nights coming up on, on Saturday against Arizona, and these guys that have been on campus for one year. So, you know, it's good. it's kind of an interesting dynamic to parlay. Look, hey, we haven't gotten as familiar with these guys, and the team's success hasn't been 
as as great, really, frankly. It hasn't been as good enough of a season as we all kind of expected coming in. There's been chemistry issues. There's been difficulty closing out close games. We've been talking about it on this show since the, since the turn of the calendar year. This team's had difficulty closing games. They've lost six games now by uh, less than single digits. So, And they've gotten a lot of comparisons to the 2005 Oregon team that lost 13 games by si- single digits and was also very, very young. So this team and that 05 team drawing plenty of comparisons. But uh, coming up next, we're going to talk to Andrew Greif of the Oregonian and Oregon Live, get his thoughts on where the uh, Oregon women's program is and where they're going moving forward because um, they've obviously come off their biggest win of the year over UCLA, and they've got an air on a road trip. I'm also going to talk uh, some duck football with Andrew as well on the other side of this timeout. Maybe slip in a Beaver women's basketball question in there too. Then Doug Haller at the bottom of the hour from azcentral.com. He'll talk Sun Devil Hoops with us as well. Just getting started on another Wednesday night. Another edition of the Quack Attack with Judah Newby. Chris Partee behind the glass on 1029 750 The Game. <laughs> to Quack Attack with Jordan Ken and Brian Perkins, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling on 1029 and 750 The Game. <laughs> uh, welcome back to Newby here with you on 1029 750 The Game. Give Kiwanuka a shout out last week because this just fits the mood. Party spinning it. I-, I always look forward to these Wednesday nights, CP. I hope you, I hope you know that. You know? It just works out real nice. Even when I play the wrong intro. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> Dude, I appreciate you, man. You'd have to do that a lot more times for me to get mad at you. Um, yeah, let, let's talk Oregon women's basketball. They got that huge win Monday night over at UCLA. And, you know, it's one of those things. It's like we don't pay attention to women's basketball because it's such a low-profile sport. But... Hard to ignore the fact that you've got an 8th-ranked team and a 12th-ranked team that plays 50 miles away from each other, right? And and the fact that Oregon, as a 10-seed last year, went to the Elite Eight, that Oregon State, as a 2-seed the year before, went all the way to the Final Four, their first Final Four ever. Both teams ended up losing to UConn in the most historic years of their career or of their uh, program's respective histories. So wanted to talk to Andrew Greif about it right now from the uh, Oregonian and Oregon Live. Follow him on Twitter at Andrew Greif. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Fair to say that this is the uh, greatest quality of women's college basketball this state has ever seen? I think you're right there. I, I wrote something similar that it could be um, this way in December before the Pac-12 season started. And since that point, Oregon has lived up to its kind of um, billing as a top-two team in the conference. Obviously, they're, they're number one right now in the standings with two games left in Oregon State. It was a transition year. Everyone knew that, and yet they're only, um, what, two games back from Oregon. Uh, they're tied for third with UCLA. This year has been excellent for them as well. And so the, the programs, while they've had you know, individual success um, apart from one another, they've never overlapped with this kind of uh, shared success. And so this is a very rare things happening between Oregon and Oregon State right now. I got to watch a little bit of the game Monday night when the Ducks played UCLA. Andrew, I was impressed with the electric atmosphere that Matthew Knight had. I saw over 7,000 fans were there for that uh, high-profile game for top 10 teams, the Ducks and the Bruins. Uh, What was that atmosphere like, and then what was it like seeing Oregon 
have that big lead, and then the Bruins come back to force OT, but the Ducks stiffen up in the end and get that victory. It was The atmosphere was uh, the best that Kelly Graves can remember coaching in his four years um, with the Ducks. I mean, he, uh, he took the mic for senior night after the game ended and, and thanked the fans, saying that when he started, he could basically he knew all the fans by their first names. There were so few of them. And now that was the second largest crowd to ever see an Oregon women's game at Matthew Knight Arena. So it's uh, it's pretty remarkable the difference, and it made a big difference down the stretch. I mean, it was it was very loud. I mean, I would put it on on par with some of the noise being made at men's games over the years that I've been to. Um, it was it was one of those games where you figured Oregon would probably pull it out, even when it got tight, just because this is a team that really hasn't backed down a whole lot all year. Um, but still, that that they won it is a, is still a statement game, a statement victory because. There's not often that uh, many years Oregon sweeps UCLA, you know, especially a really good top 10 UCLA team. And they've beat them now on the road, at home. Uh, you know, we talked a lot in the preseason about how this team was so young. How would they handle moments like that? Could they come back and could they hold on to wins? And you saw it slip away, 19-point lead. You know, then they were trailing by three, but they found a way to win. I think that's a real testament to the this team that really plays older than its years. I see Oregon's record right now, 25-4 and four overall. And those four losses have come at the hands of a pair of top five teams back in the non-conference season, Louisville and Mississippi State, then losing at Corvallis by six points, which is completely understandable. Uh, and then losing at home to Stanford, who was a top 25 team at the time. Now, that was a 13-point loss, and it was at home. So that had to have been disappointing. But... Those are four pretty high-quality losses, are they not, Andrew? And what does that say about Oregon's ability to compete at a high level nationally across the board? Yeah, those are definitely four quality losses. Um, Stanford was number one in the conference at the time. That put them in the first place, and they won that game. And that was a game where they had uh, Brittany McPhee scored 19 consecutive points to, to end the game. Wow. I mean, it was, it was pretty unbelievable circumstances of that one. Oregon didn't have Lexi Bando for Stanford. They also didn't have her for that Oregon State loss. They have her back now. And the schedule that Oregon played in November, where they played, as you alluded to, the Mississippi State's, Louisville's, and also a top-20 team twice in Texas A&M, um, kind of steeled this team uh, for what was to come. And you, you can tell that experience has helped them. Um, I don't think they're going to be uh, cowed by the NCAA tournament and the pressure on them there. It certainly didn't matter to them last year. And this year, with all the kind of the way they've backed it up, I certainly don't think it should affect them this year. Sabrina Ionescu as a sophomore, so fun to watch. And fifth in the nation in assists right now. Just how good is Ionescu, not only as a uh, as a player on the floor, but what she brings in terms of leadership to this team? Yeah, she's. I've, I've watched a couple games this year in person where uh, she's taken over in stretches and, and basically – have said we're not going to lose this one, and that was the case uh, against UCLA. She scored seven points in overtime, uh, didn't have a turnover in 42 minutes. I mean, 12 assists, I believe, six rebounds. She's she's obviously the NCAA's triple double uh, leader all time with nine. She's only a sophomore, um, but I think that not just her raw physical skills that allow her to do that. With some of the things that her coaches rave about is just you know the leadership, and that um, she's not going to let people. Um, kind of let the team down when she's on the floor. She kind of pushes, pulls people along, pulls her teammates along to kind of match her standard, and I think that's really important for this team. Um, and, and clearly, 
Oregon has responded well. I mean, she can get careless with the ball. That's one of her kind of knocks is that uh, maybe she tries to do too much. But I think that uh, more often than not, she is always seems to be in the right place, doing the right play at the right time. Andrew Greif of the Oregonian joining us here on the Quack Attack. Ruthie Hebert had 33 consecutive made field goals. How does that happen? <laughs> well, she she had against Washington, Washington State when it all began. Uh, those are two of the two of the worst defensive teams in the conference, and they didn't really have anyone inside to challenge her when she wanted to set up low on the block, close to the basket. So she got lots of, you know, four-foot, three-foot shots against the Cougars and Huskies that obviously started things off well for her. Uh, and then against, I was I was actually surprised against USC that um, she was able to get exactly where she wanted to go to. That's obviously a, a guard-focused offense, but they have a pretty good post in Kristen Simon, and, and she still got wherever she wanted. Um, you you knew that it wasn't going to continue for very long at UCLA. Monique Billings is too good of a post and to allow her to go 12 for 12 or something like that again. But, again, it just shows we think about the shot and, and the made field goal, but what the streak was really a testament to was how she worked herself in the position to get close to the basket, despite everyone knowing the ball was going to go to her, uh, and she still got to her spot. So I think that's a, a sign of a very savvy post player. I know they got two road games before the Pac-12 tournament begins, but uh, considering what they've accomplished so far and considering that they made that surprising run to the Elite Eight last year as a 10 seed, what are expectations that this team has for itself as they hurdle toward the postseason? I think that, you know, if they're being honest with themselves, the expectations are to advance as far as they did last year, if not farther, because, this year, unlike last, they will have the benefit of home court advantage. Obviously, the NCAA bids do not come out until Selection Monday for the women, which is, I think, March 12th. Um, however, it's almost all but assured that Oregon will be a top 16 seed and host uh, the first two rounds, you know, rounds of 64 and 32 at Matthew Knight Arena. Last year, Oregon went all the way to, to Durham, North Carolina, uh, to, to play their two games, and they came out winners. So considering they'll be on their home court, I think that that gives them a big boost and then if they're in the West region, they would go to Spokane. And that obviously is not that far of a trip for, for Ducks fans and for Kelly Graves and Adi Gilden are forward. There's a lot of connections to Spokane. So the road seems to be setting itself up well if they do get slotted into the West region for them to, you know, play into the Final Four potentially. Now, that doesn't mean the matchups will be easy. We don't know what the matchups will be, and this is a matchup-based sport. But certainly you can see why a run of the Elite Eight again would, would have to be kind of what a lot of people are thinking about. Andrew Greif of the Oregonian joining us. Andrew, let's pivot to the Beavers. I know you've been covering them this season as well. They currently also riding a winning streak of five games that also included an overtime win over UCLA recently, and they'll finish the season on the road at Arizona and Arizona State, sitting at 21-6 and six overall. Third in the conference, what do you make of the Beavers' season to date so far? Very impressive because without some of the Pac-12's defensive player of the year last year, Gabby Hanson, Sidney Weiss, the guard, who was um, really the, the motor of the team the last couple of years, without them there was an open question about you know the leadership and the defense, and they've done a fantastic job um, filling those roles. I think that Marie Gulich, the, the center, she is probably one of the most underrated players uh, in the country. I mean, I think she gets her due in the conference, but uh, she is she's kind of – the one constant every single night who will get points and rebounds and blocks where everybody else kind of 
has off nights or on nights around her. They kind of rotate. You know, some nights it's Katie McWilliams who's on. Some nights it's Michaela, Michaela Pivik. Some nights it's Taya Corisdale, uh, Kat Tudor. But you always know Gulich will be there. And I think that's been so critical uh, to have her be that kind of rock of the team this year because she was really the, one of the very few uh, returners who you could point to as being um, just a consistent presence coming up back from last year. And she's, she's actually improved quite a bit. So I think that this has been a really good coaching job by Scott Ruick because of all the questions entering, and yet here we are uh, late, late in the, in the regular season, and they are tied for third and still, you know, a force. And next year they're going to be extremely good again. They get Destiny Slocum, the national freshman of the year last year, who's redshirting. They get her. It's going to be actually a really fun couple years to see Oregon, Oregon State, you know, kind of, I think, trade shots at the top of the conference. Last thing for you, Andrew. I'm just curious, the dynamics of covering uh, two excellent women's college basketball programs after spending, you know, nine to ten months of the calendar year deep in the heart of Oregon football. Uh, what's that been like? What are the kind of the differences or similarities or, or the uh, journalistic practices of, of covering college hoops? You know, it's um, I, I like it because I like variety, and so it's nice to have two different teams. And um, you know, when one team uh, was you know losing, and not not that these other teams have lost very much, but you know, the other team well, we would invariably be on some kind of hot streak. And so it's been actually fun to bounce back and forth. The teams have very distinct personalities, and they're different personalities. Um, and I think that's kind of fun to contrast that, even just for myself. Um, and I've really enjoyed just kind of having to know what, you know, 28, 30, uh, athletes and several coaches instead of just, instead of just one staff. So it hasn't been a whole lot different in terms of logistics of how I go about covering it, but I just enjoy, um, covering two very relevant, uh, teams nationally. And because they, they are, they do have, you know, different DNA and yet they kind of show up at the top of the conference the same regardless. So it's, it's fun. And while I get a chance to talk to you on the phone, I want to also just get your thoughts on what Mario Cristobal has done with that football program coming out of his first signing day and uh, filling out his assistant staff with Alex Mirabal, a longtime friend of his. Uh, you had a piece about that uh, on Oregon Live yesterday. I encourage readers to go check that out. But what have you made in your um, talking to Mario since he's been named the head coach and everything he's been brought through since? You know, I think that Every move um, from Mirabal being the 10th assistant coach, uh, this is the extra assistant. In past years, they only had nine. This year, they had 10. People kind of developed that 10th role however they saw fit. And I think adding Mirabal along with the kind of focus of the recruiting class, which was so much on the line play, is a reflection of Cristobal himself and his vision for the program, which involves beating people up up front and playing bully football. Um, that's something that is, is obviously coming straight from his experience at Miami, at Alabama. That's the way he was taught. And while the kind of perimeter speed and the up-tempo offense and things that we've come to expect from Oregon over the last 10 years uh, will remain, I, I do think that what he wants to do is mold at least the interior into something that he's more, um, more used to. And I think the power... Uh, the strength, the kind of more physical play up front on both the offensive and defensive lines is something that it comes from Cristobal directly. I think that's exactly um, a sign that this is his program because 
you know, I don't know how another coach would fill out their staff, how do they use that 10th role, but with Cristobal coaching the offensive line as a whole, Mirabal coaching guards and centers, and then a graduate assistant coaching offensive tackles, that's a pretty good indication of the attention they're going to pay um, to the kind of the, the road graders up front and how much they want them to play a role. So I, I think you can kind of see Mario Cristobal's whole career path and the things he's focused on his entire career on the moves he's made since taking over. Yeah, I, I personally like the sound of that because, you know, in this day and age of spread offense and speed on the perimeters and, and vertical passing games, yes, that you got to have that to some degree, but to have toughness inside on both sides of the ball, to win the trench war, especially with teams like Washington, your rival to the north, that always has you know strong play in the trenches. That's got to be an area that Oregon stresses as a uh, as a point of emphasis. Does it? Does it not? I mean, is it? Could this be the way that Oregon wins differently than other teams in the conference? Yeah, perhaps so because you have um, the you know very up tempo teams, and then you have the Stanford uh, polar opposite. And I think Oregon, will, you know, would ideally, and I think other teams would try this too out clearly, but. You'd love to kind of bridge that gap and be the best of both worlds. I think that Alabama did this best when they brought in Lane Kiffin uh, as offensive coordinator, and he overlapped with Cristobal, and you know they were able to turn that offense from a more outdated style into the up tempo, um, while also retaining the power element with Cristobal helping coach the offensive line. And so that's kind of the prototype for what it, what it can look like, the best of both worlds, but. We also have to remember that's Alabama, where they have um, so much success recruiting, otherworldly success recruiting. How Oregon is able to take what sounds like an, an excellent idea in theory and actually put it on the field is something else, and that's obviously what we'll be looking forward to, to seeing you know, in spring ball and then also in the fall. The problem we ran into is I bring Andrew Greif on to talk about Ducks women's basketball and Beavers women's basketball and how well they've been playing. And then I take a bite of the college football apple and I realize how much uh, we're all anticipating the season to get here again. And I look down and we've had Andrew on for 20 minutes. Andrew, you've been so generous with your time, sir. Thank you for that. And uh, for fans, you know, eager to see where the Ducks and Beavers go on the women's hardwood the rest of this year, both especially um, with, with high expectations and optimistic futures. Follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Greif and follow all of his coverage on the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Andrew, thanks a lot, man. Good talking to you again. Good talking with you, and thank you. Coming up next, Doug Haller, AZ Central Sports, Arizona Republic, Quack Tech. Moving on on 1029, 750 The Game. More Quack Attack with Judah Newby. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. On your home of the Oregon Ducks. 1029 and 750 The Game. Nothing like a little jet, huh? Got about four or five big hits that I really like. But, I mean, these this has got to be in here. Here we go. Three, four. Hey, welcome back. 
back to the Quack Attack 1029 750. The game. True to Newby here with you. Chris Partee spinning it behind the glass. Ducks get Arizona State in Arizona this week. Time to chat with Doug Haller. Always good to talk to Doug. Doug covers Arizona State football and basketball for Easy Central Sports and uh, the Arizona Republic. Doug, how you doing this time of year? I am doing great. Um Glad the uh, I'm kind of surprised the end of the season's already here. It goes by so fast, but the next two weeks should be fun. And of course, Vegas should be crazy for the Pac-12 tournament. So I'm looking forward to that. The uh, Sun Devils have had the last week off before taking on uh, Oregon and Oregon State on this road trip. Their last time out on the floor faced the their rival Arizona, and I know Arizona State came all the way back in that game from a big deficit to take a lead, and then DeAndre Ayton happened. Uh, what did you see in that 77-70 to Arizona win over the Sun Devils? Well, I give Arizona State credit. Uh, they were down by 18 in the first half, which was their largest deficit of the season, and you know, it kind of looked like you know they were about ready just to get uh, blown off the court, but they did rally, and they have shown all season that you know they have that type of ability to, to score quickly and either – uh, kind of push opponents off the court or at least get back into games, and that's what happened. But in the second half, you know, it, it just <laughs> – I mean, I've known this throughout the course of the season, but, you know, DeAndre Aiden is just kind of in a league by himself. Uh, you know, especially against ASU, which is kind of thin up front. They had no answer for him. I, I'm, I, it's been a few days, but I think he had 17 points, 14 rebounds, and three assists just in the second half. So – he was clearly the difference, and uh, I mean, it was it was a high level game, uh, no doubt about that. And even you know, ASU had won three in a row going into that. Even though they lost that game, I still think they're they're in a pretty decent spot. It took, they had some rocky parts of, of the of the Pac-12 season. But I think they're starting to get back to at least to approach the way they played earlier in the year when they started off 12 and out. And I I know they got a lot of senior leadership, and it shows up in their their scoring numbers as well. Obviously, with uh, Trey Holder leading the way. Um, does that kind of help them as as the team goes through the ups and downs of the season? I mean, the, the fact that they've been in the top five in the AP poll, going as high as three, and then have dropped entirely out of the AP poll on two occasions now, the fact that they have that kind of senior leadership providing the way, does, does that help them kind of navigate through some of the valleys? Yeah, I mean, without question, having senior guards is always a, a huge plus in college basketball, especially – Late in the season, the one drawback for Arizona State is that those senior guards have never really been in this position before, so they're kind of making it up as they go. Uh, the team hasn't been to the NCAA tournament since uh, 2014. That was under Herb Sendek. So, you know, it, it's not like they know this path. I mean, they've kind of made it up, kind of made it up as they've gone along. Uh, you know, they've done things that, you know, no one in this program has done since the 80s as far as, you know, you know, get into the top 10, starting off 12-0. and 0. You know, these were all new things uh, that, that, the, that the program was experiencing. And, and for the most part, they did okay with, I mean, handling that. I think once they started facing some adversity, once they got into conference play, losing to Arizona and then going to Colorado, losing to overtime, and they realized that, you know what, it's not going to be quite this easy because in the conference, you know, Coaches Dana Altman has seen Trey Holder and Cody Justice for four years now. He knows what they can do. He knows who they are. Uh, he has coached against Bobby Hurley for three years now, so he knows what Bobby Hurley does. It's harder, and I think they felt the weight of, of the expectations because, you know, it kind of blew up here in Tempe. I mean, this is a program that, you know, could only fill half the arena for the Pac-12 for their biggest games. 
uh, in the Pac-12 for, you know, for the most part of the last 10 years. So now they're playing in sold-out crowds, in front of sold-out crowds. It was different for them. <laughs> and uh, I think once they started struggling, they had to kind of readjust and find different ways to win and find their confidence. And they're slowly getting back to that. I don't know if they're totally back to it, but but they're approaching it. Doug Haller joining us here on 1029-750 The Game. Uh, Doug, the top four seeds, as you know, in the Pac-12 will have buys in the Pac-12 tournament. And Arizona State currently on the outside looking in to those top uh, top four slots. But finishing the regular season with these uh, with the Oregon schools and then finishing at home against the uh, Northern California schools with Cal and Stanford coming into Tempe. What do you think the odds are that the Sun Devils finish strong and get their way into a bye? Not good. Um, there are a lot of teams in front of them right now. I think, you know, if you consider the tide, I don't have the stance in front of them, but I think they're tied with Oregon, and since Oregon's already beaten them, they would be, ASU would be eighth, I think, in the Pac-12 right now standings. Um, not, not, I wouldn't, I don't, I mean, I think they probably at least to start have to win three of their last four. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means splitting this week in, in Oregon and then um, winning the last two in Tempe. I think winning the last two in Tempe is definitely doable. Uh, I think both these games this week will be tough for them. But predicting the Pac-12 on a week-to-week basis is nearly <laughs> impossible. I mean, just when you think a team is hot, uh, they go on the road <laughs> and everything changes. So, you know, everything's pretty much on the table. I think there are nine teams in contention, and that's counting Arizona, which I think pretty much has a has one of those buys locked up. But um, it, it's it's tough, man. I think Arizona's obviously the front runner. I think Utah might be playing better than anybody right now. After that, uh, you know, I know UCLA's, you know, kind of looks like they might be finding something, but you know, I don't fully trust them. So it depends what everybody else does, and ASU does have. One advantage in the fact that, you know, they, they finish at home and they do have one game at, you know, at Oregon State that you think they might be able to get. And, you know, maybe they can find a way. I think it will be difficult for them in Eugene, but maybe they can find a way to get that one too. But um, I don't know. It's Like I said, it's just tough. Week to week, it's impossible to say what's going to happen in this conference this year. And the piece you posted this morning on power rankings in the Pac-12, which, by the way, you can follow uh, or you can read by following Doug on Twitter at Doug Haller, and it's at azcentral.com. Um, you know, Arizona, you know, top of the conference right now, and for good reason, and it looks like they've got the best talent top to bottom, uh, without a doubt. But then there's Utah that you that you got power rank number two, and it's like that's a team we can forget about all too easily. But Utah is also playing one some of the best basketball in the conference. But I guess Doug, is this a good college basketball conference, or is it just is there just a lot of parity, or are those both and statements can both be true at the same time? You know, all the metrics say that the Pac-12 is the worst of the power conferences. I I tend to lean that direction, but at the same time. You know, you mentioned I'm an AP Top 25 voter. It, I've done that for several years now. Um, it's never been as hard as it is right now to come up with 25 teams that belong in the top 25. Um, you know, usually, you know, the top 10, you kind you have a good idea who those are. You know, maybe you could stretch out to 15. After that, I mean, you could just throw it up in the air. It, it's not just the Pac-12. It's it's really all over the country. Um, you know, St. John's beating Duke, St. John's beating Villanova. I mean, we're seeing things that typically, and I know college basketball has always been kind of this way, but I don't know if it's been to this extreme. I don't, I don't know 
how good anybody is. I mean, obviously Villanova's good. Virginia's extremely good. Uh, you know, I, I, I would have put Purdue in that conversation before they lost three in a row. Uh, Michigan State obviously looks like, you know, they're, they're always dangerous this time of year anyway. But, you know, I think usually when you go into a year you, or go into the NCAA tournament, you think you can maybe, you know, circle eight teams and go like, those eight teams have a chance to win the national championship. I, I think it might even be closer to 20 this year. I mean, it's just a really bizarre year. And the Pac-12, you know, Arizona is obviously – the leader, but, you know, it's not the Arizona we've seen from previous years. They're not as dominant as they've been. Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, maybe the conference might be a little bit deeper than, than usual, but, you know, I don't see anybody that's, to me, when you look at it, I don't see anybody that's capable of a deep NCAA tournament run. And I would include Arizona in that. That doesn't, that doesn't make me very popular in the state. Hmm. But, you know, I just don't see a team. I mean, obviously Arizona has elite talent. There's no doubt about that. If you put – their roster up against anybody's in the country, you might take theirs. But, you know, and even Sean Miller will say, they very rarely will, will, you, will you watch Arizona and say, like, okay, they look like a team that can do, do some damage. They just, uh, they've been kind of up and down. Now, maybe they're starting to put some things together right now. I don't, we'll have to wait and see. But to me, it just seems like it's a down year for the conference overall. You know, while we're kind of touching around that subject, the fact that Arizona is one of those schools being investigated uh, by the FBI and, and, um, you know, one of the prominent brands when that report came out. What What are your thoughts on just the state of college basketball right now, and and all the kind of unsurety and and the the nervous uh, hand wringing? I'm sure that's being done by a lot of coaches and athletic departments. Um, you know, on one hand, this is the way business has always been for a lot of these schools, and on the other hand. I, this is a big deal. I mean, the FBI is getting involved. Uh, what are your thoughts overall on what's been going on in the sport? Uh, well, I don't know. I think everyone knows, Everyone kind of suspected that, that this was going on. Now, when the FBI gets involved, obviously that's something you don't expect. Um, you know, when it first happened, you know, gosh, way back before the season started, everyone was predicting that this was the end of college basketball as we know it, and here we are four months later, and really not a whole lot has changed. I mean, you've had Rick Pitino ousted, of course. Uh, DeAnthony Melton at USC didn't play this year. Um, you know, certain players that were directly involved, um, their situations changed. But, you know, the two Pac-12 programs that, are, that, are, uh, that were included in the report, Arizona and USC, yeah, they, they've they had some changes on the coaching staff, but as far as, you know, uh, I mean, when this first happened, people in Arizona were talking about, you know, Sean Miller was going to possibly lose his job. You know, that's kind of cooled off at this point. And I know that uh, Pete Thamel of Yahoo Sports just posted a story last week that said, you know, they had some sources that said, like, you know, it's coming, it's coming, and, you know, said that, you know, 16 of the top seeds that the NCAA tournament committee recently posted uh, that if the season ended today, here are your top 16 teams. I think he quoted somebody saying half of those teams would be in trouble, that, you know, this is really going to alter the sport. You know, we've been waiting a long time for this. And my concern, my question is, how far is the FBI willing to go with changing the sport of college basketball? Is that something that they really want to make a priority? Um, or will they just kind of, like, say, look, we scratched the surface, we're going to turn it over to the NCAA? And, of course, the NCAA doesn't have the greatest track record with cleaning up the sport in the first place. So, to me, it's always been kind of a, you know, I don't want to say I'm looking at it with a little bit of skepticism, but, you know, it's just kind of like, okay, we'll see what happens. There's been a lot of talk, but not a lot of action at this point. 
Doug Haller, AZ Central, joining us uh, right now. Last couple things for you, Doug. Um, first, this Arizona State matchup with Oregon Thursday night. What do the Sun Devils have to do in this game on the road in Eugene um, to, to change the result from when they lost at home to the Ducks earlier this season? Well, Arizona State is at its best uh, when their senior guards are shooting the ball well. And you know, that, that happened throughout the non-conference season. It was, it was amazing how well Trey Holder, Cody Justice, and Janet Evans all played together. Uh, since then, in the, in the conference season, teams have done a good job of taking away one of them or two of them. And, you know, they've had a hard time winning when, when two of the three aren't playing well or one of the three. Um, they need Trey Holder to play well, first and foremost, and he has been playing better lately. Uh, I think I, I went back and looked. When, when those three guards uh, account for at least 60% of their scoring, they're, they're eight and three. And, you know, the, the biggest wins have come when those when those three guards have accounted for 60%, the Kansas win, the Xavier win, UCLA, USC. So they need to do that. The other thing is they need to get to the foul line. Um, you know, they don't – they're limited in the post, um, and they've kind of offset that throughout the season when they've played their best by getting to the foul line. At one point they were leading the nation in um, free throw makes and attempted. Well, over the past eight games they've shot uh, attempted fewer than 20 on five times are on five occasions, and they've lost three of those games. So they need to get to the foul line, and they need those senior guards to play well. If they do that, they can they can beat anybody in the conference. They just haven't been able to do it uh, consistently lately. Last thing for you, Herm Edwards, how's he doing? <laughs> <laughs> Herm is, um, I guess everyone always asks me that. How is Herm <laughs> Edwards? Um, he, he's, he's fine. He's exactly what, you know, everyone says, is he really like what you see on TV? He is exactly what you see on TV. Um, I've been, I, I can't wait for, I've never said this, but I can't wait for when spring practice starts because I just want to see what it's like to see, to work with him on a daily basis because so far I've sat down with him one-on-one. I've seen him in a couple of press conferences, uh, and he's always been kind of that soundbite type coach, uh, always very motivational, even speaking with the media. So I just want to see him what he's like on a daily basis if he's always that guy. Uh, because when, when they did hire him, I talked to him in the NFL, some guys that had coached in the NFL, and they said that, you know, that kind of, you know, kind of runs its course over the course of the season, and, and teams kind of players kind of learn to tune that out. So I just that's that's my big question. But um, I think people are warming up to the idea, at least locally. I don't know about nationally, but at least locally, I think people are starting to warm up to that to his hire. And uh, you know, they finished their recruiting class strong, so that certainly helped. Can't wait to read your work uh, from Arizona State spring ball and just to see. You know, yeah, I, I can't wait to see the results that uh, that that Herm provides and to see what kind of hire that. That was in terms of wins and losses will uh, will be intriguing. Doug, thanks so much for being generous with your time. It's good to connect with you and uh, enjoy the uh, the trip to Oregon and and all the college basketball that I'm sure will will uh, be coming in in the next uh, few days for Arizona State and moving into the Pac-12 tournament. All right, guys, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate it, Doug Haller. Final segment coming up next. We got a key matchup before we pass it to Scotty Farrell and CBS Sports Radio at the top of the hour. Chuda Newby here to wrap up things on the Quack Attack in about uh, four minutes on 1029, 750 the game. Back to Quack Attack with Judah Newby. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. On your home of the Oregon Ducks. 1029 and 750 the game. Ducks Arizona State. Ducks Arizona to follow. We got a key matchup coming up here in our final segment. Thursday, 
8 o'clock pregame, 8.30 tip for Oregon, Arizona State. Keep in mind, ASU has not beaten the Ducks since February of 2014. Bobby Hurley has yet to beat Dan Allman. He has also yet to beat Sean Miller for what that's worth. We'll also uh, have your coverage of Ducks and Arizona. What a big game that is. Coming up Saturday night, Roxy Bernstein will have the call on ESPN. But, of course, you can hear Joey Mack, Jerry Allen with the call right here. 6.30 pregame Saturday, 7.15 tip for the Ducks and Wildcats. Party. Let's hit it. Which matchup will be critical for the Ducks' success? Judah Newby breaks down the key matchup. Brought to you by Oregon College Savings Plan. Imagine the possibilities. It's always weird having your senior day at a campus where you've transferred to, right? It's not like the culmination of four years of hard work. That being said, I think Duck Nation can have sincere appreciation for what Mikhail McIntosh has brought this season since transferring from Illinois State. And uh, he, he really is putting, putting in good work lately, too. The loss at UCLA, Mikhail McIntosh, 19 points, 9 boards. The Thursday previous, he had a season-high 23 points at USC. And keep in mind, the last matchup with Arizona State, when the Ducks upset the 11th-ranked Sun Devils on the road, 76-72 is the final in that one. McIntosh played 35 minutes, 12 points, 13 boards, 6-13 from the floor. Helped Oregon overcome a 12-point deficit there. And, uh, you know, he's he's had a really, really nice role all year. Dan Altman spoke at practice earlier this afternoon talking about the contributions of McIntosh. He's done a really good job. He's, you know, he's been consistent for us. Um, you know, like I said, you look back over the year other than the Stanford game, you know. But, uh, you know, he has played really well the last month. And. Uh, he, he's done a good job. He has scored double figures in eight of his last 11 games as well. I'm predicting that he will do it twice more. Yes, that includes Saturday when he's going up against the likes of the tree, DeAndre Ayton, and the future number one pick of the NBA draft. Keep in mind, Oregon's keys to success defensively, trying to limit Arizona State's high potential backcourt. Led by the senior Trey Holder. Uh, he's their leading scorer, averaging just about 20 a game. When Oregon allows 70 points or more, they are 6-9. and nine. When they allow fewer than 70 points, they are 11-1. and one. Now, Arizona State is a, is a scoring machine. They struggle a little bit more on the defensive end of the floor. That being said, Oregon held Arizona State to 72 points on the road in their last meeting, and that was by committing 12 fouls in the first half. Arizona State made 16 free throw attempts in the first half alone. I'm predicting tomorrow night Oregon will play a little bit cleaner defense. They'll play a little bit more complete game from start to finish over the 40-minute span. My guy, Mikhail McIntosh, will have a big game. Thursday night will go well for the Ducks, and it will be in their favor. They'll get a W then. Saturday, not so sure. I know they played Arizona to a real, real tough battle, and it came down to the final 90 seconds in Tucson in January. I'm not sure Oregon has similar luck this time around. I'm going to go with a Wildcats victory in that game. Although, keep in mind, for Arizona's long-term prognosis, well, short long-term prognosis, talking about their NCAA tournament chances for this season, we just had Doug Haller on of AZ Central Sports, and he said he wasn't buying into this hype that Arizona was a Final Four team. He says he was able to see some flaws, so I'm eager to see where the Wildcats do, and especially how they finish up this regular season. But ultimately, next week, we'll wrap up the regular season, the final regular season edition of the Quack Attack, and then we'll uh, keep it in mind for a week after, because that's when Vegas is happening, baby. Let's take the show to Vegas, party, and then we'll spin live DJ. I'm ready the, to do it. For the bump music. Yeah. Take the show on the road. I think I think we got to do it. Let's just not tell anybody. Let's just go. 
Let's just do our own thing. All right, we're going to wrap it up there, pass it off to Scotty Farrell. I'm Judah Newby. This is 1029-750 The Game, The Quack Attack, another edition in the books. These hours on Wednesday nights just fly by like there ain't nobody's business. We'll see you again next Wednesday evening, everybody, as the Ducks head up to Seattle. In the meantime, it's ASU Thursday. It's Arizona Saturday. We got both games for you right here on your home of Oregon basketball. 1029 and 750. The game.